If you were throwing a party, if you had a dinner party, you could invite a handful of guests, who would you invite? Who would you want to be at the party that you're throwing? Uh, maybe your closest friends, uh, people you'd most want to just spend that time with and share a great meal with. Maybe, maybe a group of friends you haven't seen in a while. Perhaps you have a, a group of old college friends and you only get together every couple of years or so and just have kind of a reunion meal together. Uh, we, uh, Clancy and I once got invited. We had a friend, a couple that we, we knew pretty well, not, not real well, but they, in a charity uh, raffle, they won a dinner party at their house where this famous chef, I don't remember his name, famous chef comes and he was serving all this exotic food and, and wild game meats and all this exotic stuff. And we got invited. It was, a, it was dinner for eight. And I don't know, we must have gotten seats seven and eight. I don't know how we got invited. It was one of the best meals I've ever eaten. And uh, so we kind of made the list to that party. Who would, who would you invite in that kind of a setting to your party? And would that change if anybody you invited would absolutely come? So uh, nobody would say no. So would you invite maybe somebody famous or a really prominent person, maybe, uh, maybe a really interesting person? My friend, a good friend of mine, was uh, doing his wedding invitations, and he was sending them to friends and family, and he decided, you know what? We're going to invite Jimmy Buffett to our <laughs> wedding. And he sent a wedding invitation uh, to Jimmy Buffett. And, uh, and you know what? Jimmy Buffett did not go to his wedding, nor did he decline RSVP nothing from Jimmy Buffett. If you are listening online, Jimmy, you owe Jeff Rask a response to the, to the wedding. So what if you invited Jesus to your party and Jesus showed up at your house with your guests? Uh, what would he do? Uh, what would that be like having Jesus in your home? Um, you know, would you get a miracle? Would you get some teaching about poor people? Or, you know, probably. But we don't have to imagine or guess because here in Luke chapter 14, we have Jesus invited to a dinner party at a house of a very prominent religious leader. And he, he does a healing at this event. And he teaches, uh, gives some wisdom teaching. And he also teaches about caring for poor and disadvantaged people. It's exactly what you would expect. It's the Jesus, Jesus type of party behavior you might imagine. But if you look into God's word deeply today, you'll see that Jesus really tore down this party. He tore down his host and guests and he tore down their wisdom. He tore down their pride. He tore down their whole social system and the things that he said and did. And he demonstrated in these things a whole new way of life. That way of life that he demonstrated was the way of humility. And we're going to talk about humility this morning. I did entitle this message, Dinner Guests. If I were to retitle it, or if I had a, a second chance, I would call it Humility the Hard Way. Lessons from Jesus, Humility the Hard Way. And there's three lessons for us. This is humility that destroys the pride in our knowledge. It's humility that destroys the pride of our status and our position. And it's humility and the pride of our networks and associations. It tears all those things down. And we're going to look at that this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. We turn to your words and we turn to what you have said and done. And I simply pray, may I decrease and may you increase. May you be our teacher. May we understand your words correctly. 
may this go deep for us. Help us to hear these things and know how to respond to you, Lord. Give us hearts to know it and be obedient to it, Lord. It is in your precious name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Humility the hard way, lesson number one, is a, is a humility that destroys our pride in our knowledge in the things that we uh, think we know. This comes from this healing that Jesus did at this, uh, at this event. Now, the Pharisees and some of the other religious leaders, they didn't like Jesus. He was a threat to their authority. Uh, they didn't like this whole Jesus movement. They were trying to discredit him. They were trying to catch him doing something wrong or unlawful so that they could prove that he was a lawbreaker and a bad guy and then uh, discredit his whole movement. And so the, their, their one thing that they thought they could get Jesus on was his, his healing people on the Sabbath. They felt that healing somebody was work doing work on the Sabbath, which was forbidden by God's law, and therefore this person is not from God because this person is breaking God's law. Uh, the Pharisees believed that they were right, that Jesus was wrong, they were confident, and, and, and we get that, right? When we, the things that you believe, you believe them to be right. You believe them to be true. That's why you believe them. That's the definition of belief. You think it's true, so therefore you believe it. And here, they were confident that they were absolutely right. And the, the problem is when we, when we feel so confident that we are right, it can lead to pride. So what happens is Jesus starts healing people on the Sabbath. In, in the Gospels, there's seven times that Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, and four times are described here in the Gospel of Luke. Each time that the Pharisees use this as a way to discredit Jesus or to try to show that he's a lawbreaker, they get into a debate, and Jesus just destroys them in the debate. He just crushes them in this debate until they are left just completely humiliated. In Luke chapter 6, this is a passage we looked at a few weeks ago. Jesus is talking about the Sabbath. He says, you know, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Basically, that he's, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He invented Sabbath. But specifically, he asks these religious leaders, he says, What is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? to save life or to destroy it? And he asks this question, and he turns to a man whose hand is, is shriveled and, and crippled, and he heals it. He does the thing which gives life. And Jesus is saying, look, is it good to give life or take life? It, should I heal or hurt on the Sabbath? And they all knew, of course, at that point, that it was good what Jesus had done. Then in Luke chapter 13, we have, again, on the Sabbath, Jesus is healing again. And this time, it's a, it's a little old lady, and she's crippled. She's bent over. And Jesus heals her from this condition, and she's restored uh, to her right posture and health. The leader of the synagogue at this point says, Look, you've got six days in the week where you can do this kind of a healing. Why must you heal on the Sabbath? She doesn't have a life-threatening disease. You know, pick a better day. Why are we doing this here? Uh, just just pick, a, pick a better day to heal her. And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 13, verse 15. He says, hey, hypocrite. I added the hey. It's my <laughs> translation, but... Hey, hypocrite. Doesn't each... He did use that word. Hypocrite, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? 
Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? He's like, look, you'll untie your donkey to give it water. You're not going to untie this woman from her crippled condition on the Sabbath? And when Jesus said this, Luke 13, 17 says, when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. Because he was right. They were wrong. Now, in Luke chapter 14, we have all the, Jesus is at this event, and all the people are watching Jesus closely, it says in verse 1. And you can almost picture it. So Jesus is at this event, everybody's just eyes on Jesus, and he's looking around. It's the Sabbath. And you can see him thinking, oh, we're going to, we're going to do this fight again? We're going to have this one again? And he says, hey, everybody, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? And what do they say? Silence. They say nothing. And then Jesus heals this man of this condition where he has swelling in his body. And Jesus asks if, uh, is, it was, um, is it lawful to heal or not after he heals him? And what's their response after the healing? They have Nothing to say, verse 4. Nothing to say. They, they, they were wrong about Jesus, but for time and again, they were they really trying to get him on this thing. They dug in their heels. They, they were so confident that they were right, and they could prove Jesus wrong until they were humiliated and just completely shut up. It's a good thing that we never behave this way. It is a good thing we never dig in our heels when we think we're right. Even if we think we might be wrong and we just dig in and just try to prove ourselves right. We never do that, do we? <laughs> I wish that were true for me. I've, I have dug my heels in on arguments for no real good reason other than to try to be right. And I've done it in ways that are too embarrassing to even share here. I do it primarily with my sister-in-law, and I don't know why her. I've known her for a very long time. Um, and since we were teenagers, and we've just always had this relationship where I feel like I have to be right. Now, I fell in love with her sister, and I, we get along much better since then. But I just want to prove her wrong. And it, it's the stupidest stuff. I had a roommate in college, same thing. And he was a good friend of mine. But we would fight over everything became a debate with this guy. We were having the stupidest thing, like, about music. Like, oh, this was the greatest band of the 70s. That wasn't the greatest band. And then this, why are we fighting? Why are we debating each other about stupid things about sports or about, you know, I'm like, oh, Wildcat Pizza is, like, really probably the best pizza in Durham, New Hampshire. That is not the best pizza in Durham, New Hampshire. Clearly at the eatery, there's the, it's just on and on, these stupid arguments. We've kind of lost touch. He, he did become a lawyer, I'll say. I became, and I became a preacher, so um, I love him a lot. They, the lesson for us from Jesus here is to have some humility about our knowledge, the limits of our own wisdom. How smart do we really think we are? The danger is, as we believe what we believe to be true, is we can become very opinionated and judgmental especially people of faith, can, can come across with a, this know-it-all kind of a posture versus a welcoming and inviting posture. And we need to keep in mind that people generally are not uh, debated or argued into the kingdom of God. You know, people, 
It's not, it's like, I'm going to prove you wrong about the world and about who Jesus was and about what the Bible, I'm going to prove it all true, I'm going to prove you wrong, I'm going to destroy you in the argument, and then you're just going to love Jesus at the end of that. People are shown love, they are shown truth, but not typically in this kind of a combative debate type thing. We need to be winsome, and we need to be clear, and we need to be truthful, and we need to hold our beliefs strong. Knowledge is not bad. Um, we, we need to grow in our knowledge, particularly our knowledge of God's Word, our knowledge of the Bible. Every one of us needs to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of God's Word. But what is the purpose of knowledge? 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So the purpose of knowledge is, is wisdom and greater love. It's not about judging others or shaming others with our knowledge. And we need to hold the humility in all things that there are limits to our knowledge. The cross of Jesus Christ is the great equalizer in it, in this. God's wisdom for the world is shown on the cross of Jesus Christ. We are fools. We are the fools who have turned from God. We are the fools who are broken and dead in our sins. And Jesus has to come and save us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who would believe. It's the foolishness that God would take on human flesh and die in our place and rise to new life that brings us life. That's God's wisdom. And we needed it because we were fallen and foolish. So we just pray, God, give us a sense of, of proportion. Give us a sense of what, where I really need to dig my heels and where I, I, and where I need to let things go. Where I need more humility relative to my knowledge. And that's lesson number one. Humility in regards to my knowledge. I want to avoid being like, like the Pharisees here. Okay, so wisdom the hard way, lesson number two is humility relative to my status or my position, the pride that I might take in who I am. And here Jesus uh, tells a story of a wedding. In verse 8, he says, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, the host who invited you both will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important seat. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the guests. It's, you know, this, is, this is how it worked. At a, at a Middle Eastern banquet, particularly a wedding feast, um, you would sit in the order of your association to the host. So whoever was closest to the host would sit in the first seat and then the next closest person and down the line. This was just how things were done. It was very appropriate in that sense. But it's easy to make a mistake if you show up and just pick where you are. Oh, I think I'm pretty important. I'll sit here. You don't know who else was invited and you could make a mistake. It could be very embarrassing for you. I was trying to think of the modern day equivalent of this. And maybe if you've done a, a seating chart at a wedding, if you've ever gone through that uh, headache, you know, you, you get a sense of it's important how to seat people. But uh, I had an experience this past fall where I had um, a friend of mine is, is in a band and they were doing a show. And uh, we got 
t- we got comp tickets to the show, four of us. And the four of us, we go to Boston to this club, and he's, he gave us VIP tickets. And uh, this is very cool. So I go, I go to the, we go to the club, and we get our tickets. We say, hey, oh, and, hey, we know the guy in the band. You know, we're on the list. And they're like, yep, here's your tickets. Now, the tickets didn't say VIP, but they didn't need to say VIP. We knew, you know, we know the band guy, and here we are. We're VIP. So we go up into the balcony, and all the common people were kind of crowded on the floor. <laughs> and we go into the VIP box, and we think, this is great. This guy, we've got space to move around, and we, we get a great view of the stage. And, uh, and then someone showed up at the box, somebody dressed up a little too nice, and said, hey, how's it going? He said, um, uh, this is the VIP box. We said, yeah, we know. VIP box. This is, that's, uh, we're, we're here. We know, we know the guy in the band. And he said, uh, that's great. But the band's VIP box is on the other side of the, the sound bar. This is the VIP box for the um, promoter of the concert or whatever. I said, oh, oh, sorry. Well, you know, one VIP box and all of us VIPs, you know, sometimes it's, is it this VIP box today or that one? Today? No problem. So we go to the, to the next VIP box, which is about, the, you know, it was still very nice right over the stage. And we were enjoying that. And the show was right ready to start. And then another person came, a guy with big muscles and a, and a shirt that said security on it. And he said, can I uh, see your tickets? I'm like, oh, you, you mean my VIP ticket? Yeah, here you go. And I show him, and he said, uh, this is not a VIP ticket. You need to leave this area right now. And uh, we said, oh, totally humiliating. And then we had to go uh, with all the sweaty, crowded people down on the floor. And it was not cool. And then we looked up in the box later and we knew some of the people who actually got into the VIP. Anyway, the, the point is this. Here's Jesus' point. It's better to be humble than to be humiliated. And sometimes it happens in this life, but Jesus said, you know what, the final judgment, it will certainly happen there. Uh, this is a major biblical principle and Jesus gives it to us all in this one phrase here in verse 11. Take a look. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you read your whole Bible with that principle, that, that those who are prideful and try to get ahead and try to gain things they don't uh, deserve, what God does to those people and how God raises up the humble and the weak and the, the, the people who are not in this world, and he raises them up. If you read your whole Bible start to finish, right from the garden to the very end, you're going to see that this is a major theme of God's work, that all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. But I'll tell you, this is contradictory to our way of life here in the Merrimack Valley. In your place of work, in your school, in your everyday life, we don't see a lot of this. We, we are a culture that believes that to, you get ahead, you push yourself ahead. We are always seeking to better ourselves and to accomplish and to achieve and to put ourselves on a high place to be seen well by others, not to put ourselves low. But God says at every level, it's just the opposite. And we do see glimpses of it. You see glimpses of it in relationships. If somebody's always trying to like, you know, make new friends who are more powerful and try to get ahead and get into that inner circle, they become very annoying. Nobody wants to be that person's friend, but they're trying so hard to make those social connections. We see it in leadership. We see leaders who say, you know, I'm the best. I'm so great. And more and more arrogant leaders, fewer and fewer followers. 
diminishing influence and effectiveness, but humble leaders in businesses and in communities maintain influence and respect over a long period of time. And God's word says, Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. It's not about putting yourself in that high place, but look at other people and consider them better than you. How do we apply that here? Well, we have a lot of seats in this room. Do we have seats of honor? No. There's no uh, reserved seats here. So don't ever tell anyone that they're sitting in your seat in this room. And it's happened. So just don't. This church from its founding in 1846 was a free church, which, so they were abolitionists, so the freedom of all people from slavery. They were free church of Scotland congregationalists. But it was the free church model where you didn't have to rent your pew. Back in congregational churches, you used to have to pay money to rent your seat. You had a pew with your family's name on it. We don't have names on the pews today, so you don't have your seat. Just come really early if you want it. <laughs> That's fine. Um, or come at nine, because there's a few more seats, but not many. Um, but that's one way that we just don't take, you would never take someone's seat here. Perhaps even more important than your seat in the pew is your parking spot. There's no, we don't have reserved parking spots either, except for our visitors, which we would like to leave for our visitors. And that's probably not you after today, because you've had your visitor thing. If you're, Visiting, but how far can I park from here? This is a way of just putting yourself out for the sake of someone else. This is a very small thing. In my house, we just we have this new thing um, where if you do a menial job in our house, you're a hero. And it, it comes from this, uh, this is a silly song that we heard one day called, I Did the Dishes, I'm a Hero. And uh, you can look that song up. And the, the song goes, I did the dishes, I'm a hero. And I don't, need a, I don't need a trophy or a medal, just a thank you and some jello. It's just how the song goes. But every time somebody in the house does a menial task, you know, hey, I just refilled the soap dispensers. They were empty. I refilled them. You're a hero. Hey, I brought the newspaper up the driveway for you. You're a hero. Like every little, to be a hero in our house, you have to do something that's just menial or simple or basic. And we just remember that that is, in God's kingdom, it's these it's simple acts of kindness and putting yourself down that God raises up. Um, again, in your place of work, you probably have opportunities to help somebody who's below you. You'll get no credit for it. It's not part of your job, but you can really help and pitch in and someone else will get the credit and we can be okay with that. Again, Jesus is our ultimate example. Philippians 2 again. Our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped to his advantage, but he made himself nothing, took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place. That's what God does. When you put yourself ultimately low, he raises you high. So God exalted Jesus to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
That is our pattern. That is what our attitude is to be. It is not about our position and our status. It's about humility. Humility in our knowledge, lesson number one. Humility in our status is lesson number two. Humility the hard way. Lesson number three is about humility in your uh, network, of your associations. We see this in verses 12 through 14. Uh, Jesus said to the host of this party, he said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the cripple, the the lame, the blind, and, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus said, look, if you're going to throw one of these parties, you invite people who are physically, uh, physically impaired or economically disadvantaged. That's who you should really be inviting. This is a radical notion. Because in Jesus' day, in order to get anything done, in order to operate in life, you needed connections. Everything was done through these social connections. So if you needed a favor or you needed something accomplished, you had to be connected to people who could do it for you. And you had to be able to offer them something. So if you wanted to kind of climb up the ladder, you would look to those people above you and invite them to your house. You would entertain them, and then you kind of get them part of your network. And if you were of a higher status, you know, you would get invited to lots of places, so you'd have this great network. Now, today it's quite different because our, uh, our professional networks and our personal networks are, are fairly separate for, for most people. And you don't need to be networked to a lot of people to get life done. You just need money. You, get, you have money, you just hire somebody to do what you need them to do. And it's, it's much less about, it's, it's much less intertwined today. But you have to, you have to uh, understand how costly this is, you know, for, for people to, to, to think the way Jesus is, is thinking here. So we may not feel it so acutely, but we are people who look up to people who we see as higher status than us. In this country, in the United States, we are obsessed with celebrity. And it's a, did did you know uh, that celebrity worship syndrome is a real psychological designation? Celebrity worship syndrome. And there's a whole spectrum of this syndrome. It could be all the way from just sort of, you know, following on social media, famous people, what are they doing, what are they wearing, what are they eating today? That's on one end of the spectrum. In the middle is your basic stalker. And then on this end of the spectrum is your pathological stalker who believes that now the celebrity is communicating back to me through their songs and through their movies and all this. This is a delusional kind of stuff. So on that spectrum of celebrity worship, we, we do this. We look up to people who are more connected and powerful and successful. Someone say, that's just natural. That's our biological, like, you know, prehistoric times. You might look up to a successful hunter or an elder person because these are the kind of, you know, longevity and, and able to get food. This is things you would admire. But today, we don't have to hunt like that. And we don't need to, um, you know, more people can live longer. So we don't look up to that. But we look up to celebrities because their fame and fortune, you know, they, they're onto something that we admire or want. Um, one, one anthropologist, evolutionary anthropologist from the University of Pennsylvania, his name is Francesco Gil White. He says, it makes sense for you to rank individuals according to how successful they are at the behaviors you're trying to copy. 
because whoever's getting more of what everybody wants is probably using above average methods. So it's just kind of wired in us to do that. Wherever it's coming from, we do have a propensity to want to look up to people. And Jesus says, you know what? We don't operate that way. My followers reject that notion that we're just always trying to associate up. We reject that whole system. And now he's speaking, it sort of uses hyperbole here. Jesus doesn't mean you can never invite your family and friends over for dinner. So don't use that excuse. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, Luke 14, Jesus says, I can't invite my, uh, my brothers or sisters over anymore. So sorry, can't come over. No, that's not what he's saying. That can actually be a very beautiful thing. He says, what you do is you're inviting people who can't help you necessarily, who aren't dignified, giving preference to poor people, preference to hurting and lonely people. And this is the kind of hospitality and the kind of generosity you can show to anybody. True hospitality, inviting somebody into your home, which is really the heart of your life. Not because of what you get, but just simply to give. And you're giving the things that give you pleasure and are blessings to you, like good food. You have people over. You don't serve them food you don't like. You serve food that you like. You sit them in comfortable places. You share the blessings that you have so that others can be blessed. And in that, giving preference to the poor. Again, not just writing a check, not just giving them money, but opening your life. This we can show to anybody in our lives. And I think the challenge for us is to, how, is to consider this week, how might I take a next step in opening my life to someone? Sometimes we look at it, I, sometimes we call it the, the four tables of my life. Maybe it's a coworker, and you have a work table, and you're working with them, and you're living out your faith as you work by working with integrity and with all your heart as if working for the Lord and with kindness towards your coworkers. And so you share that work table, and through that you might, get, uh, you might have an invitation to a coffee table where you go grab a cup of coffee with someone and sharing a little bit more of your life. And then through that, there may be the next invitation. The third table is the dinner table where you invite someone into your home and again, sharing who you are and, and sharing your faith. And at a certain point, we share the Lord's table. You may invite them to church and share your faith with them. And this progression of tables can be a beautiful way to, to share your life and to share your faith and consider how might I take a next step in that. It's true hospitality and true generosity and, and, and inviting someone into your life. And, and the reason why this is, our motivation for this is, again, it's Jesus. We are the ultimate unworthy guest. We are the ones who are so crippled and dead in our sin. We have no business being part of Jesus' network. He's got the perfect network. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit doesn't need us in that. He has the, the most beautiful home and the most perfect place. Yet, he, and again, whenever you invite someone in your house, it costs you something to feed them and to, to share what you have with someone else. For Jesus, it cost him everything. He gave up his perfect home to walk with us and to give his life for us that we might be brought into his family, unwelcome guests, welcomed by his radical grace and his sacrifice for us. That is true hospitality. That's true humility. And that's our example. So we, can have, so we can have humility in who we invite into our lives. Humility about our, who we really are and humility about what we really know. Let's pray together. Father God, as we, as we consider this, we confess that humility is difficult, that pride is easy. Lord, I confess that pride is easy to slip in. 
And we just pray that you would change our hearts, that you would do your good work by the power of your spirit to transform us. May we be more like Jesus every day. May we be more like Jesus in how we view ourselves and our willingness to just put ourselves low, to serve and to welcome others and to, and to just share our lives, Lord. But we need you to change our hearts for it to happen because, Lord, we, we cling to, to ourselves. We see ourselves very high. And I, I pray that you change my heart and the heart of everybody in this room, that we might leave this place changed and ready to serve. We thank you that Jesus served us ultimately. We thank you for your great love and sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.